Today we celebrate Oregon's outstanding state park system. Underground history host Chelsea Rose of the Southern Oregon Laboratory of Anthropology and historian Mark Carpenter discuss some of the challenges, triumphs, and surprises of Oregon's sprawling state parks. Carpenter is co-author with Marin Orend of the book The First Century of Oregon State Parks, So the Future Will Have a Place. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today, I am joined by historian Mark Carpenter, co-author of the recently published book, So the Future Will Have a Place, The First Century of Oregon State Parks. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, so let's jump right in. Oregon State Parks just passed a really big milestone, 100 years. So how did you get involved in tackling the history of this, you know, how we got to here in parks? Yeah, well, uh, as part of the preparation for that 100-year milestone, uh, they were looking at the histories that had previously been published about Oregon State Parks and seeing both that uh, some very important recent events uh, in the 1990s and, and 2000s hadn't been covered, and also that there were some old historical assumptions in there that needed to be corrected as part of their pivot towards trying to make parks more inclusive and uh, reckoning with uh, some of the sins of Oregon and the United States past. Yeah, that's that's great to be thinking about that. And just before we get into those those things, like let's just talk some basics. Like, do you know how many parks there are? There's got to be like hundreds, right? In oh, addition, there's a bunch. I wish I had that number. <laughs> okay. Lots. There's lots of parks. Uh, yeah. They're all over the state, right? Mm-hmm. And in addition to parks, there's heritage sites and like other types of like public lands that are managed under the same umbrella, right? Absolutely. Public lands and all sorts of public services, uh, many of which were added over time. So the state parks, it's Oregon Parks and Recreation Department officially, in part because they cover so many different kinds of public service and public lands uh, for the people of Oregon. That's that's great. Now, over the past, I'm, I'm an archaeologist, so over the past decade plus, I've had the pleasure of working on lots of parks and heritage sites, and we're still working at the Kamwa Chung up in John Day, and, and we're mm-hmm. always kind of actively working with the Park Service. But we've spent our summer digging all over Shampooey. We've worked at the Geisel Monument on the coast, Wolf Creek Inn just north of here, Collier on the east side. And it's been really cool to get to know the diverse history of all these different parts of the state. And I know there's so many more stories to tell. We've actually been recently talking with one of the park's archaeologists about um, a site on the Rogue River where they were um, farming turtles. And so once we heard turtle husbandry was a thing, we were like, we have to know more. Um, And this led us to stories of catfish derbies and all sorts of things. So basically, there are all sorts of awesome stories on the parks, but they they probably, you know, in, in doing this research, you've got to have found um, parts of the history that they're not really representing as good as they could. So what stories did you find that we need to do better at highlighting or uncovering or even getting more land to, to kind of reference? Yeah, well, of course, that's a huge question. And I'd say um, there's lots of people at parks who are working actively to try and uh, improve those stories, try and bring in new stories. Uh, and I think there's lots of welcome for new and more inclusive stories, right? There's a lot of push to include more diverse voices in parks to tell new stories. And I got turtle farming is an amazing story, right? And so I think we do well with those kinds of stories uh, in Oregon parks. Uh, I'm fond of the, the strange things that 
they did with waterfalls in the early days of putting cars over them. That was odd. Um, <laughs> but I think where, where there's still a lot of struggle is, uh, I'd say, several areas, a couple I'd underline. One is figuring out where older narratives need to change. I think uh, it's an easier case to make for new stories, but older stories that are problematic, uh, including some of the older stories that are told at Shampui, for example, uh, have been harder to change. Uh, recognizing, um, if I may be blunt, the, the horrors that were inflicted on indigenous communities in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, especially, uh, the parks have been slow to figure out how to include that in their interpretation. Uh, and on those same lines, trying to figure out how to uh, co-manage and co-create those stories uh, with the affected communities, with indigenous communities and others. And again, lots of individuals are really trying to work towards that. I think the department is trying to work towards that, but it's still a long road ahead. That's right. And so many of these parks that have really focused their identity on this glorified pioneer past, it continues this erasure of indigenous people from the places and these public spaces. So that's something that's challenging, I bet. And you said in your book, um, quote, the loudest voices in the archives are from the top. So what other types of data did you wish you had access to? Or do you hope that the Park Service is looking towards to kind of address these issues that you're talking about? Yeah, well, I'd hope uh, that as part of expanding interpretation, right, uh, bringing in uh, voices from previously excluded communities has been a uh, definite part of that, right? So I think more of that will be useful in future archives. Certainly when we start doing uh, new stories on some of the newer parks or newer interpretations, like uh, it was Ken Lichen, uh that was co-created with several Oregon nation, nations and communities, uh, those are going to have this great varied archive. Uh, but I, I, I sure wish there had been more uh, discussions and more resources devoted to those groups in the past. So one of the struggles we had of telling this first century is that so much of the archive is just uh, memos and voices and speeches from the top. And so we had to read those pretty carefully, often against the grain, to pull out uh, stories of minoritized groups. And we were able to find some. I think uh, one of the things I was, I was particularly proud of finding is it turns out that that um, a relatively prominent Osage leader, Kehikate, or uh, George Hall Chief, actually worked uh, in the Oregon State Parks as a teenager. So we were able to show, okay, here's this other story where he was, he, he did some of his interpretation in regalia talking about Native pasts. On the other hand, he was working alongside uh, a, a number of uh, white parks employees and volunteers who were dressing up in red face and pretending to be uh, Native people in ways that uh, are pretty, pretty racist. Right. So kind of looking both for those stories of hope and kind of interesting multi multicultural perspectives in the past, often in the same records where we'll see uh, records of places where they fell short. Yeah. Wow. And I, that's a really good kind of juxtaposition of that exact thing, that example. And you're, this book is about the park system, not necessarily the history of all the parks. That would be a lot of books. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we were talking earlier, like, and, and we say at the beginning, we can't possibly cover all the parks. Uh, we, we, we take the lead of previous park superintendents of refusing to pick a favorite. Uh, although we kind of broke that in our author's bios on the back. Uh, yeah, it's very much how did this park system, how was it created? How was it administered? What challenges did it face? And uh, how well did it face those challenges? Uh, rather than trying to cover the hundreds of different parks and hundreds of different uh, activities and heritage areas they discussed. 
Yeah. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in the region and beyond, and you can find us on jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with historian Mark Carpenter about the first hundred years of Oregon State Parks. So when you were uh, working on this, did you have access to some of the archaeological data that's been done? You know, the Park Service has um, actual staff archaeologists that are wonderful, and they work with archaeologists all across the state. Um, was that a data set you were allowed to access? We were allowed to access it where we could. We did write this during the pandemic, oh, so yeah. <laughs> uh, we had certain restrictions on our level of access, but absolutely, uh, particularly when writing about the more modern periods, uh, those archaeological data sets were vital uh, to the story that we're trying to tell. And we were also, uh, among other things, telling the story of how archaeology uh, came to be incorporated into the Oregon uh, Parks and Recreation Department, right? Kind of moving from uh, attempt, earnest attempts by people without training to a more formalized, professionalized staff, and eventually, uh, just in the past few decades, to a more formalized relationship with uh, Indigenous nations in the state. Yeah, and in working with the nine federally recognized tribes, did you um, did that really help shape the way that you were thinking about these parks and the history of um, these spaces that were not fully inclusive? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think uh, that is a place where there's been improvement and a long road ahead, and something we tried to uh, stress early and often, certainly uh, by the other meaning stress, the thing that we, we spent the most time trying to get right, whether or not we did, is to emphasize the extent to which uh, Indigenous nations and Indigenous people have always uh, managed uh, the landscape here, right? Long before European invasion, there was a relationship and management of lands and spaces uh, by Indigenous people and Indigenous nations. And so we tried to highlight that early and, and bring it up occasionally throughout. Yeah. And I know that you said in there, too, you had free reign to, to address the good, the bad, and the ugly. So it didn't just have to be a puff piece. You got to kind of really criticize and point out some places where parks could do better. And that that's great. Yes, I think that was great, both the kind of the honesty of that from the department. And frankly, it allows us to tell a, a more interesting story when we can tell it warts and all. Yeah, and especially because you really frame this as the first hundred years. So, you know, you can learn archaeology and history. You know, it's all about learning from the past. So hopefully they can use that to inform the next hundred years. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, one thing I thought was interesting, too, to think about the history of the park system as a whole is because I, I'm often working on, you know, different regional ones and thinking about them in isolation. But early transportation was really tied into what became a park and kind of how this landscape of park looks today, because you had to be able to get there. And probably the areas uh, that were more touristy or maybe closer to urban areas would have been um, had more, uh, I don't know, push behind them to make them uh, parks or were more accessible. I mean, how did that, how did like transportation and roadways shape the park system? Absolutely. So uh, I think one of the surprises for me coming into this, not knowing this deep history until we were writing this book, was the extent to which uh, highways and parks were linked in the 1910s, 1920s, and onwards. Uh, initially, it was in part giving people somewhere to go. So highway interests were behind having new, new parks, uh, just so that people would have somewhere to drive and admire. And then that got folded into the notion that people needed places of uh, natural beauty, places where they could see things, uh, beyond the hustle and bustle of urban landscapes, uh, and that eventually became more and more of the mission of the parks. So that's part of why parks and highways were so closely connected for so long. Uh, and it allowed for all sorts of interesting stories from that time under highways, uh, where, uh, for example, I got to write about the Blacktop Gang uh, <laughs> that influenced uh, the creation of parks uh, in the 1920s, 
Uh, and then the, the development as they move more and more towards what we would now think of as a park mission of uh, preservation as well as recreation. Yeah, and that, that was something, too, I noted in the book was kind of the way that people thought about the park system changed over time. So preservation and saving these beautiful places. And then also there's sites that are good for camping and they're, you know, and developed for like bike trails and stuff like that. So how much was that um, a decision on, on like how, what was that recursive relationship between like what the public was asking for and what the organization was, was trying to do with their limited funds? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Well, I'd say uh, the public would have made our job a lot easier if there was just one public. So uh, throughout, there's multiple publics asking for different things from the parks. Uh, and so there's, there's always a public to listen to, but uh, the public doesn't necessarily agree. Uh, the kind of constant tension, and this is true for parks across the country, not just the Oregon State Parks, is how to balance uh, that preservation mission, which here was quite early from the first superintendent, often before other state park system, there was this focus on preserving nature in some way and how to balance that with the need to make sure that people are able to go into the parks and experience uh, natural beauty for themselves. And so the exact balance of how to balance those two things varied, but that's at least in Oregon parks been part of the mission just about from the beginning. Uh, but the first, uh, the first superintendent of Oregon State Parks who we might spend the most time on because he's so amusing was particularly against uh, – what he called the smell of hot dog water and the ethos that came with it. But he really wanted these to be natural places to the greatest extent possible and keep out things like concessions and initially camping. Whereas by the 1950s, camping was a prime mission of the parks as Americans more and more wanted to go somewhere to camp naturally. And a big funding source, because I know that that's one of the things that really hit the park system hard when the pandemic hit is Absolutely nobody is camping anymore, and that faucet is turned off. So that's another way that they support themselves, right, is by selling hot dogs and campgrounds. <laughs> <Can't say. laughs> the, the hot dog water is still on the back foot. <laughs> yes, campgrounds are a major source of funding. Of course, uh, the state lottery is currently uh, the major source of funding for the Parks Department. Part of the point of writing this book was telling the story of that. Uh, decision that kind of the campaigns for and against that some of the alternate attempted funding methods that didn't go through there was briefly an attempt to fund parks with a small tax on soda instead of uh, take uh, the lottery funds that they eventually landed upon uh, and one of the overarching themes of the book is that there's always been a struggle for funding through the parks there's never been a golden age uh, it seems like in every era uh, Oregonians love parks but it's really hard to figure out a way to get them to pay for them uh, so that's kind of a constant struggle throughout the decades is how do we figure out an appropriate source of funding that Oregon's can, Oregonians can get behind to fund this thing so many Oregonians, urban and rural, enjoy. <laughs> and so to get back into that, too, you know, when you talk about preserving these natural landscapes and the way that these have been presented, I mean, that also kind of ties into the lack of the acknowledgement acknowledgement of these as indigenous spaces because they are curated that, you know, they might seem totally wild to folks, but, you know, a lot of these landscapes are curated landscapes of the time when white people first came here. I mean, is that part of something that's being more and more uh, understood now in the way parks are approached and managed? I think it's on its way to being understood. I think, there, again, there are individuals in the State Parks Department who know that very well. I think they're starting to build that broader institutional knowledge on that. I think uh, in parks generally, and again, this is national as well as uh, state level, there's still uh, too many people who uh, 
are seduced by the notion of wilderness, right? The notion that there existed, that, the, that what they're trying to create is a land without people, when in fact, none of this land was without people, right? Indigenous people were here and were shaping the landscape in a reciprocal relationship from time immemorial. Uh, and so I think that's an ethos that is being developed, uh, but it's still something that, that is sometimes struggled with uh, on the ground. Yeah. And kind of on a similar note, like when did the Park Service get into managing heritage sites, like not just having to deal with the archaeology within the lands that they manage, but actually they're in the heritage tourism business in some areas as well? Yeah, so that developed slowly in the 1940s and 1950s uh, and kind of became fully a part uh, of the Park Service in the uh, 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, there there was attempts to make heritage a part of parks from the beginning. So even back at the very beginning of the Parks Department in the 1920s, uh, you would see people calling for parks that had historical elements. Uh, and one of the first state-administered parks, uh, Shampooey, was primarily a historical park long before the Park Service even existed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And is that something that they're looking to expand? Like right now, just kind of in looking how Park Service came to be where they are at this moment, do you think that our current, uh, you know, people in in power and the park system and then also the society's priorities push from that end, like is it towards more natural areas or more like camping or more heritage interpretation? Do you get a sense of what, you know, how that's going to shift going forward? I, I think they'd love to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that uh, a lot of what's going to shape those are going to be where they see the priorities of the public. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, the park system is beholden to the public. Uh, but which one of those will get more priority? I think it will depend on uh, where the funding lies and where uh, popular support lies. Yeah. So if any of our listeners have an opinion, let the people at state parks know what you want to see, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. They do care. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I think is interesting, too, is the history of this story is also the history of, like, kind of the way parks are developed. So, like, the CCC was involved in some of the parks, like Silver Falls, and now a lot of the stuff that they built to be, like, park infrastructure is now an archaeological component of these sites. Like, uh, do you know a little bit to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So the Civilian Conservation Corps of the 1930s, which was brought in for the New Deal, uh, was... Uh, like many of the other changes, is seen as a great way of uh, adapting uh, and finding some source of funding to make and expand parks and recreation. Uh, particularly, they were used to build uh, roads and buildings in some of those parks that otherwise wouldn't have had the funds to do so. Uh, but as you said, right, everything becomes history. And so those are now also kind of classic examples of 1930s architecture, so they can be interpreted as history in that way. And it might be my bias as a historian. I think sooner or later, history will be a part of just about every park because uh, it's all history, right? It's all in the past. So I think there's always going to be some kind of historical element, and those two will grow and change uh, as the parks take on their own history over the decades. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that I think about when I think about the history of parks is the fact that um, all of Oregon's coastline is uh, public lands. And in southern Oregon, where we live, there's the Samuel Boardman, you know, like 12 miles or something in Curry County, which is just some of the most gorgeous beach um, beachfront area ever. And that's that's pretty um, unusual, isn't it? That's not all states don't have uh, free public access to the coast, right? I mean, I know some places it's hard to get to it, but the coastline yeah. is public, right, in Oregon? Yes. Uh, the coastline is almost, with very few exceptions, is public. And that is both uh, unusual and I think celebrated uh, by many Oregonians. And that's the result both of 
some deliberate choices. Our, our book starts properly in 1913, where you can trace that initial recommendation. Again, initially that the beaches were to be treated as public highways. You can see that highway connection. And then eventually that, that uh, became the beaches being uh, for the public more generally, uh, climaxing a struggle over that in the 1970s, where that eventually was nailed down in law that we have public beaches in Oregon, again, with very few carve-outs and exceptions. Yeah, uh, And I think that's both a wonderful uh, kind of mission and change, and also uh, there's a role of serendipity in that. There's very little evidence that people in 1913 knew uh, what kind of gift they were giving to future generations in Oregon at the time. Yes. Thank you, people in 1913. Yes. <laughs> no, laughing, it's, at least. Yeah, it's incredible whenever, you know, the coastline in Oregon, I think, is some of the most beautiful coastline in the world. But um, and the fact that you can just go explore, it's just it's just so cool. Um, so one of the other things that, you know, thinking about in the future and what people in 1913 might have thought about 2021. So a lot of the challenges are are definitely shifting um, over time, and especially with climate change. We've got mega fires. We've got a lot of erosion and stuff on the coastline. And, and now that uh, we've got these, I don't know how many hundreds of miles of public lands, that's also hundreds of miles of, of uh, you know, things that can go wrong. So how is the park thinking about navigating that? I mean, I know you said money was always a challenge, but it looks like some of these uh, risks are rising exponentially. Yeah, well, uh, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> uh, being a historian doesn't entirely equip me to answer, I have to say. Uh, but I would say I think that a lot of meeting that challenge will be uh, building alliances and getting funds from uh, other places. So, again, speaking to the wildfires, part of wildfire management uh, in Oregon has been not only drawing on new sciences, but also on older indigenous sciences for how to do controlled burns effectively. I think... Uh, Dealing with erosion on the coastline is going to take relationships with uh, perhaps private entities, but certainly with other governmental bodies to preserve uh, the coast of Oregon and preserve the lives of those who live on the coast. Yeah. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us on jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm talking about Oregon State Parks with historian Mark Carpenter. Um, So... I have to ask, well, kind of two things. Like, I'm definitely curious to know what some of the most interesting things you found during this research was. But one of the things that I always think is a super fascinating rabbit hole um, in the history of Oregon is Vortex One. And I saw that you talked about that a little bit in your book. Yes. So, yeah, Vortex One is a a famous um, free rock concert set up in uh, MacGyver State Park. Uh, as a way of drawing would-be protesters away from Portland, where there was a planned protest of the American Legion, uh, to a free rock concert where um, laws around controlled substances would not be enforced. Uh, And it was uh, effective in drawing thousands of people to that park. Uh, And within the Park Service, it was greatly feared, and those fears turned out to be overwrought. It turned out that the thousands of young people and hippies who went to that park really just wanted to hang out and watch some music. Uh, But we were able to read... Uh, semi-confidential documents where there were like parks spy planes flying <laughs> over Vortex One to try and see if they were up to any mischief, and eventually determined, nah, they weren't. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And I mean, Vortex One. Is there a Vortex Two or Vortex Three? Or it was <laughs> um, there was an attempt at a Vortex Two, but it didn't have the same impact. Uh, I wouldn't bet against the notion of a Vortex Three one of these days. Oh yeah. Hey, that sounds fun. <laughs> 
I love it. So were you, I know you said that this happened during COVID, but were you able to visit many of the parks as part of this process? Or did you feel like you were a little bit limited in understanding the history of these places, like as an assemblage, if you're just looking at them from the archives or behind a computer? Yeah, so I'd say for most of the time where we were writing this book, uh, we weren't able to access those parks. So it's only in the editing phase when we were. Uh, certainly, uh, both my co-author, um, Marin Arant, and myself, uh, are longtime visitors to parks, right? So we and I did visit a few new ones uh, while I was working on uh, the book. But we were trying to really take a holistic uh, view of the parks as a whole. Uh, rather than try and, and just uh, focus on the few that we were able to visit, try and look at it as a system. Yeah. And so you're no longer based in Oregon. What are you, are you still looking at Oregon history now that you're living um, outside of the state? Yes. Uh, even here in uh, snowy North Dakota, I am still very much a historian of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, my current book project uh, looks at uh, the wars uh and genocide of the 1840s, 50s, and 60s in Oregon and Washington, and at the largely successful attempts by historians in the decades afterward to cover that genocide up. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And I guess a part of that probably was relevant to this work when you think about how much of the the state that was once sovereign Indian land of Oregon is now in this new public ownership. And like you had said, not hasn't always done the best job of acknowledging that part of that history. So absolutely, yeah. And so, when you were doing the research for this, did this kind of like help inspire some of the direction of your your other research interests? Uh, they certainly uh, had some interrelation. I think, particularly, there was a uh, state park that was renamed after a man named Elijah Bristow, and I happen to know from research on my current book that Elijah Bristow was semi-secretly a uh, horrific murderer. Oh. Uh, and so, part of it was trying to track down how did this park get named after this morally reprehensible man. And a lot of that is because of those silences that were inserted into the historical record mm-hmm. uh, that I've studied in my other work. Yeah. And you had mentioned, I think, at the beginning that there's some new parks coming on board. Do you have any specifics on that? Oh, uh, well, I can't speak to upcoming parks. Oh, OK. Uh, but I would say um, maybe yeah, some young uh, ones well, that you got to research. I was Lichen Heritage uh, Area because it was co-created with uh, multiple indigenous nations uh, with the uh, Colville, uh, Umatilla, and Nez Perce. And my hope is that that will uh, open the door to more co-management across the state. Also, it's an absolutely beautiful area. Yeah, so that could be a new model going forward for how to um, kind of build those those public spaces. That's very That's cool. That's the hope. Yeah, so, and I have to ask, because I didn't catch this on the back of the book, so what is your favorite park? Uh I, I, I'm going to defer to uh, what uh, David Talbot said, a second superintendent, uh, like the major superintendent of Oregon State Parks, and say that it's like picking one of your own children. <laughs> uh, you can't pick them. They're all beautiful. But I'd also say Silver Falls. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. We were going to do a big project there and then the pandemic hit. And by the time it was over, the timing didn't work out anymore. So I was sad not to get to spend a lot of time there. So, you know, we're just kind of uh, wrapping up a few thoughts. But if you had another chapter to add to this book, um, what what would it be? What do you wish that you got licensed to to research and talk about as part of this story? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we, we got pretty free reign, which was nice. If we had, uh, what I would have liked is more time, particularly non-pandemic time, so we could have gotten more voices uh, from b- below. 
I think that's, that's if the next time that the Public Service writes one of these, it'd be great to have more voices from people working on the ground. We did our absolute best. Uh, but we weren't able to do as much with that as we would have liked. Yeah, like you're talking about like the park staff, like all the different yeah. people that work in different... Yeah, I'm sure there's so many good stories in there. Yeah, we pulled out what we could. We've yeah. got some. Yeah, but- yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, maybe an, a park oral history um, is is warranted. We could suggest that to them, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, that wraps up um, this round of Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. This was really interesting. Thank you for having me. And you can read his book just like I did because it's online digitally um, at Oregon.gov. It's co-authored with Marin Arend. And it is called, again, So the Future Will Have a Place, The First Century of Oregon State Parks. Um, Yeah, so it was a great book. And I hope others uh, find it and check it out. So you can find Underground History online at jeffexchange.org. Or you can subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time.